You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. This is live coverage of the flight of Apollo 11. of the United States manned space program. If all goes well, Armstrong and Aldrin will become the first men to step out onto the lunar surface. Millions of people all over the world will be following, by radio and television, the moonwalk by astronauts Armstrong and Aldrin. The Voice of America estimates its radio audience as the greatest of all time. Perhaps 500 million people listening to reports in 36 languages. President Nixon joined in prayers for the success of America's astronauts on the moon at White House church services. Apollo 11 carries three brave astronauts. It also carries the hopes and prayers of hundreds of millions of people here on Earth for whom that first footfall on the moon will be a moment of transcendent drama. Never before has man embarked on so epic an adventure. We on Earth will want as one people to be with them in spirit, to share the glory and the wonder, and to support them with prayers that all will go well. I call upon all of our people to join in prayer for the successful conclusion of Apollo 11's mission and the safe return of its crew.
President Nixon waving to the astronauts. The curtains have been drawn. And there they are in the rear, rear window. The president signaling for applause from the crowd. Astronauts gather in the window. Neil, Buzz, and Mike, I want you to know that I think I'm the luckiest man in the world. And I say this not only because I have the honor to be President of the United States, but particularly because I have the privilege of uh, speaking for so many and welcoming you back to Earth. Uh, I can tell you about all the messages we've received in Washington. Over 100 foreign governments, emperors and presidents and prime ministers and kings have sent the most warm messages that we've ever received. They represent over two billion people on this earth, all of them who have had the opportunity through television to see what you have done. And then I also bring you messages from members of the cabinet and members of the Senate and members of the House and the Space Agency, from the streets of San Francisco where people stopped me a few days ago and you all love that city, I know as I do. But most important, I had a telephone call yesterday the toll wasn't, incidentally, as great as the one I made to you fellows on the moon. <laughs> I made that collect, incidentally, in case you didn't know. <laughs> but I called uh, three, uh, in my view, three of the greatest ladies and most courageous ladies in the whole world today, your wives. And from Jan and Joan and Pat, I bring their love and their congratulations. We think it's just wonderful that they could have participated at least through television in this return. We're only sorry they couldn't be here. And also, I've got to let you in a little secret. I made a date with them. Uh, I invited them to dinner on, on the 13th of uh, August, right after you come out of quarantine. It will be a state dinner held in Los Angeles. The governors of all the 50 states will be there, the ambassadors, others from around the world and in America. And uh, they told me that you would come too. And all I want to know, will you come? We want to honor you then. We'll do anything you say, Mr. President. <laughs> Anytime. Uh, one question I think that uh, all of us would like to ask, uh, uh, as we saw you bouncing around in that uh, boat out there, I wonder if that wasn't the hardest part of the journey. Was that the only, did, did any of you get seasick? No, we didn't, and it, it was uh, one of the harder parts, but it was one of the most pleasant, we can assure you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just know that uh, uh, you can sense what we all sense. When you get back now, incidentally, have you been able to follow some of the things that happened when you've gone? Did you know about the All-Star game? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The, uh, the capsule communicators have been giving us uh, they daily keep you news reports. Yeah. Were you American League or National League? I'm a National League man. National I'm nonpartisan, sir. Yeah, that's right. There's the politician in the group, right? <laughs> We're sorry you missed that game. Yes. Well, oh, you knew that too. You really? Yeah, we heard that. Uh, yeah, the rain. The rain. Right. Well, we haven't learned to control the weather yet, but that's something we can look forward to as tomorrow's challenge. Right. Right. Well, I can only summarize it because I don't want to hold you now. You have so much more to do. And gee, you look great. You feel as good as oh, you look? You feel just perfect, Mr. Yeah. President. Yeah. Are you, I understand you're, Frank Borman says you're a little younger by reason of having going into space. Is that right? Do you feel that way, a little younger? We're a lot younger than Frank Borman's. <laughs> <laughs> there he is over there. 
<laughs> Come on over, Frank, so they can see you. And you going to take that line down? <laughs> it looks like he has A's in the last yeah. couple of weeks. Come on, Frank. Mr. President, the one thing I wanted, you know, we have a, a poet in Mike Collins, and he really gave me a hard time for describing you words of fantastic and beautiful. And you were, I counted them. In three minutes up there, you used four fantastics and two beautifuls. <laughs> <laughs> well, just let me close off with this one thing. I, I was thinking, as, as, as you know, as you came down, and we knew it was a success, and it had only been eight days, just, just a week, a long week, that this is the greatest week in the history of the world since the creation. Because as a result of what happened in this week, the world is bigger, infinitely. And also, as I'm going to find on this trip around the world, and as Secretary Rogers will find that he covers the other countries in Asia, as a result of what you've done, the world's never been closer together before. And we just thank you for that. And I only hope that all of us in government, all of us in America, uh, that as a result of what you've done, we can do our job a little better. We can reach for the stars just as you have reached so far from the stars. We don't want to hold you any longer. Anybody have a, a last word? How about promotions? Do you think we could arrange something? I <laughs> <laughs> oh, are just pleased to be back and very honored that you uh, were so kind as to come out here and uh, welcome us back. Yeah. And uh, we look, look forward to getting out of this quarantine and, and uh, Great. talking without having glass Great. between us. Bye. And uh, incidentally, the, the speeches that you have to make at this dinner can be very short. And if you want to say fantastic or beautiful, that's all right with us. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try to think of new, any new adjectives. They've all been said. And now I think, incidentally, that uh, all of us, uh, who the millions that are seeing us on television now, seeing you, uh, would feel as I do that, in a sense, our prayers have been answered. And I think it would be very appropriate if Chaplain Pirto, the chaplain of this ship, we're to offer a prayer of thanksgiving. And if he would step up now, Chaplain. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace. And after six years of increasing division, America finally had a moment. The world had a moment of unity when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. But immediately after, President Nixon had to get back to, to confronting the issues in Vietnam, the root cause of so much of the division gripping the country and the world. So many Americans have felt to this day, largely because they've been told that Vietnam was an unjust war and a waste of time and treasure. But I don't agree with that, and, and I believe that the war was our stand against the high-water mark of communism, which was on the march all over the Third World in the 1960s and 70s. And I think Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon uh, deserve an enormous amount of credit for staying the course and as we're going to learn in the shows ahead, Richard Nixon deserves credit for changing the entire world stage dramatically. From a place where if Vietnam fell, it could have led to a communist flood across Asia, to an albeit bloody but steady retreat from the world stage over the next decade and a half. Here, Richard Nixon is going to answer the question as to why he stayed and continued to fight this war, which, when he came into office, was at a standstill with a half a million men in Southeast Asia. Mr. President, America's involvement in Vietnam was regarded by many as a disaster. It was splitting American society at home in a very grievous way for what seemed to many 
an obscure or even a mistaken reason. How did it look to you, though? Well, it looked to me first that uh, the reason for our being in Vietnam had perhaps not been adequately understood by the American people. I thought first that Kennedy and Johnson were right in going in Vietnam. I was very critical of the way the war had been conducted. I thought they could have done, particularly President Johnson, uh, because, of course, he had the major responsibility. We were in deeper by the time he was president, that they could have conducted it in a more effective way. I had some ideas as to what could be done, uh, but I wasn't about to go down that pol easy political path of bugging out, blaming it on my predecessors. It would have been enormously popular in America. But that would have paid, had been at an enormous cost, eventually even to America, but particularly to the whole free world. But wasn't staying there, I mean, that was also at a massive cost, wasn't it, in billions of dollars, in 138,000 South right. Vietnamese killed, uh, half a million Cambodians, half a million North Vietnamese, and so on. That cost, it's a question of weighing one cost against another cost, isn't it? But it you is. thought that cost was worth paying for what you got. It was worth it in terms of the period in which I had the responsibility, uh, let me be quite candid about it, uh, the most popular position to take on Vietnam, if I was simply playing to the votes and playing to popular opinion in the world, was to bug out and blame it on Johnson and Kennedy. I know, and I didn't do it. And I, the most popular position for me to take now is to say the whole venture in Vietnam, or everything that we did, uh, was a a waste of men, uh, that it was, that, that it showed the United States at its worst. It cost us a great deal of, m of money. We were morally wrong to be there, go there in the first place, morally wrong to continue it as long as we did, and it wasn't worth it. And I could say that. And uh, many, perhaps, of uh, uh, those, and that's probably a majority of our viewers who agree with that, might applaud even some of my critics, who, many of whom I have, and many of whom I have earned. But I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it because I don't believe it. Uh, I don't believe uh, that this was a war that that I uh, uh, can uh, uh, tote up the advantages and disadvantages and say uh, overwhelmingly this is a war that had to be fought and that we had a successful outcome. I can't say that, uh, because it was a very complex situation. It was complex at the beginning. It was difficult throughout. Uh, I know it was, I know what Johnson went through and how he agonized over the war. Now, what was the first thing or the first things, what were the first things that you did then to try and solve the problem of the Vietnam War? We decided we need a new approach. And the new approach that we developed was that we would have a mutual withdrawal of all American forces and all foreign forces, including, of course, North Vietnamese forces, within 12 months of an agreement and a supervised elections and a supervised ceasefire. That was our first step. Uh, then we came on, as the months wore on, uh, there was no progress in Paris on that. 
they turned thumbs down. Their attitude was, whether it was a question of first stopping the bombing, which they said might bring progress in uh, the negotiations, and then they said we had to have something with regard to withdrawal. Now we'd offered mutual withdrawal. They said, no, that isn't enough. And so we got down to the bottom line with them very early, a line they hung to right into the last, until October the 8th of 1972. And when did you first try to enlist the aid of the Soviet Union in moderating, perhaps, the North Vietnamese position? As far as my ideas as to how we could bring the war to an end, uh, we had what I would call a three-track policy. One, uh, we should continue to negotiate and try to find some new formula that would bring the two parties together. Uh, two, uh, we should combine that uh, if negotiations reached a dead end or a roadblock with increased military pressure because we felt that with increased military pressure uh, that that might help. Uh, and as far as that complete military pressure was concerned, uh, in, in increased military pressure was concerned, it was to be combined with training the South Vietnamese forces so that they could take over more of the burden of the war because, as Vice President Key pointed out uh, several months later, I believe it was, the Americans have captured our war, and that was the case when we came in. But the third, uh, the third leg of this three-legged stool, as far as the strategy was concerned, was to go to the heart of the problem. Without Soviet arms, the North Vietnamese would not have been able to wage a successful war against South Vietnam. Did the Russians not try and influence the North Vietnamese, or were the North Vietnamese genuinely independent of the Russians? Well, the Russians told us that uh, they couldn't influence them. Uh, uh, we didn't take that at face value. Uh, we couldn't. After all, they could have influenced them by cutting down on the flow of arms to them. And their words, therefore, uh, had a very hollow ring. It was clear then that neither Soviet influence nor negotiations with Hanoi were to bring the war to an early end. And so the president was committed to continue the fight in Southeast Asia. The term the new federalism was first publicly used by Richard Nixon in an August 8th, that's why we're here today, August 8th, an August 8th, 1969 speech to the nation which defined the programs within his domestic initiative. This speech, which many of you know should have come earlier in the administration, was late, seven months after the inauguration, and late because of several reasons. First, the early months of the administration were focused on foreign policy, particularly the war in Vietnam and deployment of the new safeguard sites for an expanded anti-ballistic missile system. Only two days before the new federalism speech, the Senate, by a one-vote mar margin, voted to deploy two of the 12 ABM sites requested by the administration. And days before the new federalism speech, President Nixon had returned from a whirlwind nine-day trip to eight countries, and I quote, as he said, to lay the basis for a lasting peace once the war in Vietnam has ended. Second, there was some internal tension over the direction that parts of the domestic agenda should take. 
In particular, Arthur Burns and Daniel Patrick Moynihan had different visions for welfare reform and other parts of the domestic package. Both thought they had been tasked by Nixon with being the lead player and ended up offering conflicting material to Nixon. There was little consensus within the staff. Burns was finally moved to the Federal Reserve and Moynihan promoted out of a policymaking job. It was John Ehrlichman and members of our panel who finally framed the domestic agenda through the lens of what became known as the New Federalism. The August 8th speech not only outlined the key legislative agendas within the New Federalism, but also provided a clear discussion for the first time of why a change of course was needed from the Johnson years within the domestic agenda. In our world today, we have so many... uh issues we're trying to deal with from debt to infrastructure to how to pay for our social safety net. Uh, Now is really the perfect time uh, to look at the bold set of proposals that foresaw our nation's issues by 40 plus years. Some of Richard Nixon's proposals are still with us uh, and were for years after he left. Block grants were part of what will be known as the new federalism proposals we're getting ready to listen to, Uh, namely community development block grants, as was general revenue sharing, a popular part of the new federalism programs that continued until Ronald Reagan phased about in 1983. Some of the major portions of the proposals were derailed by Watergate, all of his government restructuring portions, for example. But like I said, now seems a time to, that we are really, as a nation, ought to look at it again, and we're going to look at it here on our show. Uh, first, the new federalism, new federalism was, as Luke Phillips coined it, a revolutionary vision for American governance. Nixon would empower the poor and those dependent on federal aid, empower officials at the state, city, and county by passing revenue sharing along to them, and finally, Nixon would oversee the smooth management of the federal government by reorganizing the federal departments into departments based on broad purpose and function. The new federalism proposal had three main focuses, the family assistance plan, general revenue sharing, and executive reorganization. And these plans eliminated bureaucratic overhead and returned power to the people. They also, in the long run, saved money and gave power that belonged to the state and local governments back to them. Quote, for years now, the trend has been to sweep more and more authority towards Washington. Too many decisions that would be better have been handled in Seattle or St. Louis have wound up on the president's desk, President Nixon said. And he was right. And it's only gotten worse. All that accumulation of power has led to nothing but ineffective and financially disastrous results. Where Washington also has a crippling hoarding disorder, everything is collected and nothing discarded. After decades of growth, the government has become an accretion of program over program, regulation over regulation, and law over law. Bruce Katz and Jennifer Bradley pointed out in their book, The Metropolitan Revolution. As I said, it is so much worse than it was when Nixon was trying to deal with it in in 1971, which is what we're going to be listening to now. The fact that we did not continue on this bold set of programs known as the New Federalism, which we're getting ready to talk about after Watergate, uh, could have headed off so many issues that we're facing today. Uh, And it it never would have happened if those plans had come to fruition. And it was another area where Richard Nixon was just way ahead of the curve. Whether measured by the anguish of the poor themselves or by the drastically mounting burden on the taxpayer, the present welfare system has to be judged a colossal failure. 
our states and cities find themselves sinking in a federal quagmire as caseloads increase, as costs escalate, and as the welfare system stagnates enterprise and perpetuates dependency. What began on a small scale in the Depression 30s has become a huge monster in the prosperous 60s. And the tragedy is not only that it is bringing states and cities to the brink of financial disaster, but also that it is failing to meet the elementary human, social, and financial needs of the poor. It breaks up homes. It often penalizes work. It robs recipients of dignity. And it grows. Benefit levels are grossly unequal. For a mother with three children, they range from an average of $263 a month in one state down to an average of only $39 in another state. Now, such an inequality as this is wrong. No child is worth more in one state than in another state. One result of this inequality is to lure thousands more into already overcrowded inner cities, as unprepared for city life as they are for city jobs. The present system creates an incentive for desertion. In most states, a family is denied welfare payments if a father is present, even though he is unable to support his family. Now, in practice, this is what often happens. A father is unable to find a job at all or one that will support his children. And so to make the children eligible for welfare, he leaves home. And the children are denied the authority, the discipline, the love that come with having a father in the home. This is wrong. The present system often makes it possible to receive more money on welfare than on a low-paying job. This creates an incentive not to work, and it also is unfair to the working poor. It is morally wrong for a family that is working to try to make ends meet to receive less than a family across the street on welfare. This has been bitterly resented by the man who works, and rightly so. The rewards are just the opposite of what they should be. Its effect is to draw people off payrolls and onto welfare rolls, just the opposite of what government should be doing. To put it bluntly and simply, any system which makes it more profitable for a man not to work than to work, or which encourages a man to desert his family rather than to stay with his family, is wrong and indefensible. We cannot simply ignore the failures of welfare or expect them to go away. In the past eight years, three million more people have been added to the welfare rolls, and this in a period of low unemployment. If the present trend continues, another four million will join the welfare rolls by 1975. The financial cost will be crushing, and the human cost will be suffocating. And that is why tonight I therefore propose that we abolish the present welfare system and that we adopt in its place a new family assistance system. Initially, this new system will cost more than welfare. But unlike welfare, 
It is designed to correct the condition it deals with and thus to lessen the long-range burden and cost. Under this plan, the so-called adult categories of aid, aid to the aged, the blind, the disabled, would be continued, and a national minimum standard for benefits would be set, with the federal government contributing to its cost and also sharing the cost of additional state payments above that amount. But the program now called Aid to Families with Dependent Children, the program we all normally think of when we think of welfare, would be done away with completely. The new family assistance system I propose in its place rests essentially on these three principles. Equality of treatment across the nation, a work requirement, and a work incentive. Its benefits would go to the working poor as well as the non-working, to families with dependent children headed by a father as well as to those headed by a mother. And a basic federal minimum would be provided, the same in every state. What I am proposing is that the federal government build a foundation under the income of every American family with dependent children that cannot care for itself, and wherever in America that family may live. For a family of four now on welfare, with no outside income, the basic federal payment would be $1,600 a year. States could add to that amount, and most states would add to it. In no case would anyone's present level of benefits be lowered. At the same time, this foundation would be one on which the family itself could build. Outside earnings would be encouraged, not discouraged. The new worker could keep the first $60 a month of outside work earnings with no reduction in his benefits, and beyond that, his benefits would be reduced by only 50 cents for each dollar earned. By the same token, a family head already employed at low wages could get a family assistance supplement. Those who worked would no longer be discriminated against. For example, a family of five in which the father earns $2,000 a year, which is the hard fact of life for many families in America today, would get family assistance payments of $1,260, so that they would have a total income of $3,260. A family of seven earning $3,000 a year would have its income raised to $4,360. Thus, for the first time, the government would recognize that it has no less an obligation to the working poor than to the non-working poor. And for the first time, Benefits would be scaled in such a way that it would always pay to work. With such incentives, most recipients who can work will want to work. This is part of the American character. But what are the others? Those who can work but choose not to? Well, the answer is very simple. Under this proposal, everyone who accepts benefits must also accept work or training provided suitable jobs are available either locally or at some distance if transportation is provided. The only exceptions would be those unable to work and mothers of preschool children. Even mothers of preschool children, however, would have the opportunity to work because I am also proposing, along with this, 
a major expansion of daycare centers to make it possible for mothers to take jobs by which they can support themselves and their children. This national floor under incomes for working or dependent families is not a guaranteed income. Under the guaranteed income proposal, everyone would be assured a minimum income regardless of how much he was capable of earning, regardless of what his need was, regardless of whether or not he was willing to work. Now, during the presidential campaign last year, I oppose such a plan. I oppose it now, and I will continue to oppose it. And this is the reason. A guaranteed income would undermine the incentive to work. The family assistance plan that I propose increases the incentive to work. A guaranteed income establish a right without any responsibilities. Family assistance recognizes a need and establishes a responsibility. It provides help to those in need and in turn requires that those who receive help work to the extent of their capabilities. There is no reason why one person should be taxed so that another can choose to live idly. In states that now have benefit levels above the federal floor, family assistance would help ease the state's financial burden. But in 20 states, those in which poverty is most widespread, the new federal floor would be above present average benefits and would mean a leap upward for many thousands of families that cannot care for themselves. A third of a century of centralizing power and responsibility in Washington has produced a bureaucratic monstrosity, cumbersome, unresponsive, ineffective. A third of a century of social experiment has left us a legacy of entrenched programs that have outlived their time or outgrown their purposes. A third of a century of unprecedented growth and change has strained our institutions and raised serious questions about whether they are still adequate to the times. It is no accident, therefore, that we find increasing skepticism, and not only among our young people, but among citizens everywhere, about the continuing capacity of government to master the challenges we face. Nowhere has the failure of government been more tragically apparent than in its efforts to help the poor, and especially in its system of public welfare. After a third of a century of power flowing from the people and the states to Washington, it is time for a new federalism in which power, funds, and responsibility will flow from Washington to the states and to the people. During last year's election campaign, I often made a point that touched a responsive cord wherever I traveled. I said that this nation became great, not because of what government did for people, but because of what people did for themselves. This new approach aims at helping the American people do more for themselves. It aims at getting everyone able to work off welfare rolls and onto payroll. It aims at ending the unfairness in a system that has become unfair to the welfare recipient, unfair to the working poor, 
and unfair to the taxpayer. This new approach aims to make it possible for people wherever in America they live to receive their fair share of opportunity. It aims to ensure that people receiving aid and who are able to work contribute their fair share of productivity. We can no longer have effective government at any level unless we have it at all levels. There's too much to be done for the cities to do it alone, for Washington to do it alone, or for the states to do it alone. For a third of a century, power and responsibility have flowed toward Washington, and Washington has taken for its own the best sources of revenue. We intend to reverse this tide and to turn back to the states a greater measure of responsibility, not as a way of avoiding problems, but as a better way of solving problems. Along with this would go a share of federal revenues. I shall propose to the Congress next week that a set portion of the revenues from federal income taxes be remitted directly to the states with a minimum of federal restrictions on how those dollars are to be used and with a requirement that a percentage of them be channeled through for the use of local governments. The funds provided under this program will not be great in the first year, but the principle will have been established and the amounts will increase as our budgetary situation improves. This start on revenue sharing is a step toward what I call the new federalism. It is a gesture of faith in America's states and local governments and in the principle of democratic self-government. With this revenue sharing proposal, we follow through on a commitment I made in the last campaign. We follow through on a mandate which the electorate gave us last November. Well, that gives us a chance to see how he felt about it, how he put it in words that were, mind you, a national primetime <clears throat> television address to the nation. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. October 15, 1969, 
In Washington and cities across America, hundreds of thousands of protesters participated in a nationwide moratorium against the Vietnam War. The anti-war movement had gained momentum during Nixon's first year as president, and these protests were seen as a direct challenge to his policy and his presidency. Another big nationwide protest was planned for November 15th. Top White House aides Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman checked out the demonstrators and the buses that were used as barriers to protect the White House on a helicopter ride above the city. Haldeman's shaky Super 8 camera recorded what they saw. The president was scheduled to deliver a speech on November 3rd, and there was widespread speculation about what he would say. The conventional wisdom was that the protests would force him to bring all the American troops home from Vietnam. Some on the White House staff were invited to contribute ideas for the speech. I'm Dwight Chapin. I was a 29-year-old White House aide, and I wrote a memorandum suggesting rallying support from middle-class Americans. The president wrote his speech himself at the White House and at Camp David. He spent hours and days making notes and outlines and drafts on yellow legal pads. In his handwritten diary for November 1st, White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman noted, P at Camp David, he called in the afternoon, very relaxed, said, well, the baby's been born, worked until four this morning, have final draft. Two nights later, 70 million Americans, the largest audience for any presidential address to that time, were watching to see what the president would say about Vietnam. Now let me begin by describing the situation I found when I was inaugurated on January 20. The war had been going on for four years. 31,000 Americans had been killed in action. The training program for the South Vietnamese was beyond schedule. 540,000 Americans were in Vietnam with no plans to reduce the number. No progress had been made at the negotiations in Paris, and the United States had not put forth a comprehensive peace proposal. The war was causing deep division at home and criticism from many of our friends as well as our enemies abroad. He described the situation he had inherited when he became president 10 months earlier. He outlined his many public and private initiatives to end the war, including a personal letter to North Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh, and he reported how every attempt had been ignored or rebuffed. He said he respected and shared the hunger for peace of the young protesters and his critics, but he would not allow American policy to be made in the streets. In San Francisco, a few weeks ago, I saw demonstrators carrying signs reading, Lose in Vietnam. Bring the boys home. Well, one of the strengths of our free society is that any American has a right to reach that conclusion and to advocate that point of view. But as President of the United States, I would be untrue to my oath of office if I allowed the policy of this nation to be dictated by the minority who hold that point of view and who try to impose it on the nation by mounting demonstrations. The street. He announced his policy of Vietnamization, 
stepping up the training of South Vietnam's armed forces to take over the fight for their nation. In the previous administration, we Americanized the war in Vietnam. In this administration, we are Vietnamizing the search for peace. After presenting the facts, the president described the two options he had and the choice he had made. I can order an immediate precipitate withdrawal of all Americans from Vietnam without regard to the effects of that action. Or we can persist in our search for a just peace through a negotiated settlement if possible, or through continued implementation of our plan for Vietnamization if necessary. A plan in which we will withdraw all of our forces from Vietnam on a schedule in accordance with our program as the South Vietnamese become strong enough to defend their own freedom. I have chosen this second course. It is not the easy way. It is the right way. Concluding his speech, he spoke to the Americans who wanted to end the war, but who weren't protesting for immediate withdrawal. He identified them as the silent majority. So tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. I pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace. I have initiated a plan of action which will enable me to keep that pledge. The more support I can have from the American people, the sooner that pledge can be redeemed. For the more divided we are at home, the less likely the enemy is to negotiate at Paris. Let us be united for peace. Let us also be united against defeat. Because let us understand, North Vietnam cannot defeat or humiliate the United States. Only Americans can do that. Public response was immediate. The White House switchboard and congressional offices were flooded with calls. Support immediately soared to 68%, when Gallup poll recorded 77% in favor. Chief of Staff Haldeman called me around midnight and said no telegrams were arriving. The White House Western Union office had closed at the usual time. So I asked the White House switchboard to get the president of Western Union on the phone. I woke him up by saying that their White House office had to be opened immediately. The next morning, all the overnight wires were piled on the president's Oval Office desk. Photographs of the desk were seen across America and around the world. Today, the silent majority speech is considered a model of presidential oratory and is included in histories and anthologies. In his diary, Haldeman wrote, P especially pleased at the reaction from the speech because he succeeded in moving people to action without demagogy. His view is that you fire people up with a tough, loud speech, but you win them over and change their minds only by calm reasoning. And that's a behind-the-scenes account of the silent majority speech delivered 50 years ago on November 3rd, 1969.
With new plans and new hopes in Vietnam, the Nixons wound down the year 1969 with high hopes for better times in the 1970s as they went in to the Christmas season. Fifty years ago, in December 1969, the Nixon family spent their first Christmas in the White House. Thanks to Pat Nixon's attention to detail, to her vision, her taste, and her energy, Christmas 1969 was full of events and historic firsts. For the first time ever, Mrs. Nixon opened the White House to the public for special nighttime candlelight tours. Some 10,000 guests took advantage of this special opportunity. Another of her firsts, and the start of a tradition, was decorating the outside of the White House with candlelit wreaths on every window. She also launched the tradition of an annual White House gingerbread house. She wanted the decoration of the splendid 19-foot-tall White House Christmas tree to have a theme, and she chose the United States. She commissioned 50 unique 8-inch silk and velvet ornaments, one with each state's name and official flower. She arranged for disabled workers in Florida to make them. She gave the White House crash a place of honor in the East Room. 350 guests attended a Sunday morning worship service in the East Room to hear Handel's Messiah. At the worship service two weeks later, there were traditional carols. The Nixons invited Bob Hope to launch his annual USO Christmas tour in the East Room. The cast included actress Connie Stevens and lap-in dancer Teresa Graves. The performance was preceded by a small dinner. Mrs. Nixon hosted a reception for more than 400 children of the D.C. Diplomatic Corps. Many wore their country's national dress, and they delighted in a performance of the Nutcracker. The next day, the First Lady presented a check for $200,000 from the profits of the Nixon Inaugural Committee to Washington's Children's National Hospital. The Nixons hosted holiday receptions for the White House staff, for their military social aides, for the press and media, for members of the cabinet and sub-cabinet, and for congressmen, senators, and their families. On the 21st, the Nixons welcomed the three young Apollo 12 astronauts and their wives with a small dinner and invited them to stay overnight in the White House. On December 16th, the First Lady and daughter Trisha joined the President for the lighting of the National Christmas Tree. The 1960s had been challenging and daunting for America. Now the President was looking forward and already planning to make the 1970s a more promising and more peaceful decade. Several handwritten drafts show how thoughtfully and carefully President Nixon had crafted his words. We hope during the decade of the 70s that we'll be able to have clean air and clean water and make progress in all the great problems, including an end to hunger in this country, something we're capable of doing today that we couldn't have done 70 years ago. But above everything else, in this Christmas season, as we open this pageant of peace, and as we light this nation's Christmas tree, our wish, our prayer, is for peace. The kind of peace that we can live with, the kind of peace we can be proud of, the kind of peace that exists not just for now, 
but that gives a chance for our children also to live in peace. That's what we believe in. That's what Americans stand for. And that, believe me, is what we shall have. And my friends, I also say to you that as we look at this great tree, there is an old saying about Christmas trees. It goes something like this. May a Christmas tree be as sturdy as faith, as high as hope, as wide as love. And I could add, may a Christmas tree, our Christmas tree, be as beautiful as peace. I think it is. I think it will be. And may this moment be one that history will record was one in which America looked forward to a decade in the 70s in which we could celebrate our Christmases at peace with all the world. And now, with this electronic device, which also did not exist 70 years ago, we light the tree. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.